for September 12th, 2019. It's the Lullabot Podcast. It's the Lullabot Podcast, episode 239. I'm Matt Cleaver, Senior Developer at Lullabot. With me, as always, host of the show, Senior Front-End Dev, Mike Herschel. Hey, Mike. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? Awesome. So we are here on the Lullabot Podcast. We talk about all things Lullabot. Lullabot is a strategy design development company, and we work primarily building websites uh, using Drupal, right? I agree with that statement. Just trying to, you know, set the scene <laughs> for everybody. Yeah, Absolutely. But to manage those projects, we have an elite group of uh, we, we, the SEAL Team Six of Lullaba, our project, our technical project managers. I was going to say something and, about a trinity of managers or project managers. Or yeah, yeah. Well, within like the SEAL Team Six of Lullaba, there is the trinity. Okay. And and, and and we have those with us here today. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about project management, kind of uh, you know keeping the ducks in the row, keeping the Gantt charts ganting. <laughs> And that, that is going to be the title of the podcast, Keeping the Gantt Chart Scanting. That's, that's it. <laughs> First up, we have Darren Peterson, Senior Technical Project Manager. Hey, Darren. Hey, Matt. How are you? Coming to us from Texas. Yes, close to Dallas. Darren, what, uh, what Lullabot projects have you been involved in? I've been with Lullabot about six and a half years, so I've gone as far back as MSNBC back in the, the early days. Um, lately, I've been working on the state of Georgia's GovHub platform for about the last year, which is maybe 85 sites all on the same code base or 100 sites yeah. now. Maybe. Uh, lots of automated migration and moving parts in, the, in a big multi-site. Uh, and there's been everything in between, small potatoes, one-off sites for uh, you know, cities and, and, and private companies, as well as you know, higher ed and all kinds of other stuff in the middle. So Okay, cool. Uh, next up, we have technical project manager, Chris Albrecht, uh, coming from Golden, Colorado. Hey, Chris. Hello. Chris, you uh, you started here as a developer. I know this because I've worked on a project or two with you, and then you transitioned into project manager. What, what type of stuff have you worked on? Oh, man. We started together on sci-fi, you and I did. Yep. And then, uh, yeah, that was an intense migration, a seven to eight redesign, the whole forklift and lipstick and everything you can throw on a website. Um, what about for project managing? For what, project exactly, managing. what exactly do you do here, Chris? Well, I think that's the beauty about being a project <laughs> manager, Mike, is we really don't do a whole heck of a lot because Lullabots are so good at self-starting yeah. work. Chris is really more of a people person. <laughs> <laughs> I have been working with uh, IBM alongside Jared Bittner with their cloud project to help migrate a number of different subsites into the IBM.com ecosystem and uh, sort of push that forward a bit. Also with us today, we have technical project manager and one of the newer Lullabots joining the team, Monica Flores. Hey, Monica. Hey, thanks so much for the introduction. Um, I'm very excited to be a Lullabot. I just joined two months ago, just raring to go and use some of these PM skills. Where are you? I'm based in Arlington, Virginia, outside of DC. Awesome. So are you on a project now that you can talk about? So we're just starting up an IBM project. And I hear this is a great opportunity to just get to know the team, get to know how Lullabot works, work with the different kind of developers, strategists, and just understanding the back part of it. And then working forward, getting to know people. I've been apprenticing to Darren, which has been great because he's been leading the ropes with the Georgia.gov transformation. It's awesome. Has he been, uh, been also teaching you saxophone? <laughs> he is actually writing some saxophone riffs for the for the brass section. So I'm excited about that. Right. Yeah, we need, we need fanfare when Georgia.gov actually <laughs> comes <laughs> <on>. <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, let's kind of uh, jump off right here. So uh, one thing that if you go to the Lullabot About page, it's not project manager, it's technical project manager. What does that mean? Like, what does that technical mean of are, are you all developers also? Um, and if so, what am I doing here? <laughs> um, I'll field that first. The, uh, the, 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 the technical project management title here sort of indicates that our, our PMs live pretty close to the work as opposed to maybe somebody that sits in a room and counts beans and, and asks developers, when will it be done? Um, 
a lot of times our our technical PMs are also acting as business analysts and you know even talking through questions about how the implementation might get done just to be a sounding board for the devs as they as they plan things. Uh, and that's usually because we came from the ranks of the developers. I I was a backend developer. Um, and we've had other folks that are come from a design background or whatever, but however it shakes out, usually our, our PMs come from the work and stay close to the work. And we think that's sort of a secret sauce in terms of how our, our success is, because if a PM knows how it's done, um, they can help the developers clear the blockers and, and it's a shorter communication gap. Yeah, I can imagine that. And it also gives a little bit of empathy for the developers from the project management standpoint. Right. That they can maybe communicate to the relevant stakeholders. Exactly. Um, it's a lot easier to work with a project manager if they're not standing over your shoulder with their foot tapping, arms <laughs> crossed, like waiting for it to be done kind of thing. If they're mm-hmm. in the So that's a, um, we think it's a big deal. Yeah, there's a certain level of trust that you need kind of going both ways in order to do that, right? I would say so. I mean, Chris, you've been doing this for almost a year now with us in the, um, in the PM side. How would you, how would you say that that's worked out for you, and and what's the big thing being a PM who's working with devs now as opposed to being a dev uh, PM like this? It was a tricky transition, coming from a world. I mean, my whole background is in backend development, and for four years, over four years, doing that with Lullabot, little bits of PMing, kind of tucked into the margins. So to do that full time, to step out of that that development role where you're part of the team. And it could be a very big team. You don't know where other cogs are moving, how the other pieces are coming together, but uh, you know you can trust them to do the work. So to sit that high above it and not have your hands in the code was a really... It, it took a few months for me to get through that transition of just letting the team work and watching the team, kind of guiding them from a higher level, uh, watching the system work over, like just overall. It's amazing to watch it happen once you get comfortable not having your hands in the middle of everything. And uh, I, I really like being able to affect the team on a larger scale and help the, the team kind of interact together. Watching, watching a couple of those pieces or helping a few of those pieces connect and, and you know use that, that business, that marketing term, that synergistic <laughs> response you get from it. But it really is, you do, you, you can evoke a lot of really great positive work responses, um, energy from, from uh, getting those, from working together with the people instead of just being one of them and having everything sort of work around you, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's been a great challenge and I've really enjoyed kind of stepping into that, that larger sphere of, uh, of watching the project go. Yeah. I found that to be a tough transition too. when I basically couldn't code anymore. Uh, there was a long transition time where I was sort of coding a little and then managing a lot um, and breaking the habit of jumping into how shall I implement this as a, as a member of the team and letting it sort of standing back and trying not to get involved in that was a, a really important lesson to learn because I would like pick up one little piece of work because I could do it. And then uh, find that I didn't have the time to actually finish it the way that I needed to. So if anybody is transitioning from dev to to project management or in the middle of that, um, keeping a loose hold on the work and letting the developers actually do it is one of the biggest skills to learn, I think. I can definitely jump in and, and talk about that. I've been coding probably since 2004 when I switched. And I uh, I think of it like In-N-Out, which is a brand out in California. The managers have typically gone through every single station in the store. So they do like fast food hamburgers. Yeah, you're talking about the hamburger joint, like the West yeah, Coast. Okay. Exactly. They know French fries. They know the meat station. They know the buns. They know the pastry. They know how to take orders. They know how to do the shipping and the handling of all the input. So I sense that from this side, I think there was quite a lot of emphasis placed on the PM having a deeper understanding of Drupal and different modules. That was the defining question in my interview is what is views bulk operations? And I laughed, a softball question. But in general, I feel a certain sense of empathy for people who are working because I understand exactly what it is taking them to understand the process. And I do I do think that from the project management perspective, to be able to sit at the, 
at the higher level and help assign people's work. I think of the people in the forest, right? If the people in the forest are just chopping stuff down, you got to get somebody up high to figure out where are you going? Are you in the right direction? Are you even getting to your destination? And then shouting out instructions to the people below to make sure that you're not chopping off in this other direction. Yeah. But I hear you, Darren. It's it's a, a, as a coder, as somebody who wants to build, who wants to commit code and wants to engineer stuff, you have to let go of that sense of um, your only meaning is in this commit and start to think about your meaning is in collaborating with the client, understanding the deadline, understanding the limitations that the client has, figuring out how our team can fulfill those limitations and uh, make it a smooth process and enjoyable for everybody involved. Yep. Absolutely. That's a, great, that's a great way to put it. Let's kind of talk about maybe getting started on a project. Uh, what what tools do we frequently use? You know, is our Gantt charts a thing? Uh, do we use Jira? I've been at Lullabot uh, for nine years and I haven't seen but one maybe Gantt chart. Is yeah, that because yeah. I'm a developer? Probably. Okay. Um, I have an opinion about Gantt charts, which is that... <laughs> They are useful for reporting upward to stakeholders who are not okay. actually in the work all the time. They just want to see the timeline and the dependencies and, oh, the schedule is shifting, right? For a long time, I tried to use a Gantt chart as if it was the primary planning tool to run the team with. And I don't actually think the team benefits from that nearly as much as it helps you surface how the schedule is working upward to, to someone who's maybe signing the, the contracts and the checks and stuff. So I don't do Gantt charts unless I'm... Uh, in that kind of a conversation. And usually the, the work works out just fine. It's more I, of I a, we are here. Is that what you're saying? Like, yeah. You know? And, or if, if we feel like there's a risk to a schedule, sometimes it's good to quantify what that critical path is. We're like, this task depends on that task depends okay. all the way, through, you know? And it's, and that's, what's great about a Gantt chart is you can see what the, what all the things that have to go end to end are going to be and therefore what your deadlines are going to be. But And that was kind of a tongue in cheek example of a project management tool. I think that's something that, you know, people sure. think project managers, it's like, Hey, we're going to have a Gantt chart because that's what they right. do. Um, and there's a bunch of other tools though, right? I mean, right. people know about Jira, right? Jira software, which is, you know, ticket tracking and a bunch of other stuff, right? That's yes. kind of normal in a lot of projects these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, I think Jira is the norm. But there's other folks on our team uh, who use lighter weight ticketing systems, like GitHub, for example, has has issues that are attached yeah. to their code repositories. And you can totally manage a project just with the, the issue queue and the boards on, on GitHub. And there's all kinds of other tools out there. A lot of times we choose to use whatever the client is already using. And if they're not using something, I would go to Jira because it's got all the capabilities that we might be used to. Jira also integrates with a bunch of other um products from Atlassian, the company that makes Jira, right? So with Jira often comes Bitbucket and, you know, the whole nine yards of that software suite, right? I mean, that kind of helps kind of keep the, the the project contained. Yeah, I also definitely say that from the paper trail perspective, because as Darren surfaced, it is important to keep a chain of accountability to not just the client that you're working with, but the client's boss or the boss's boss. And so with something like Jira, if you have a commit that's uh, against every ticket, then you can have that whole paper trail of, we talked about this user story, we converted into this epic, these are the tickets associated, and this is what was committed. So there's a auditing pre-built into the software that you're using. When I started at Lullabot, I remember um, somebody saying, yeah, we really want the client to start the or open the, the ticket software or own the ticket software because there will be a day when we're no longer there and we want them to, you know, they're going to own the project. So, you know, at the, at the time we were using Unfuddle, which I don't know if it still exists or not. It was a ticket tracking. There might have been a code repository in it. And it just kind of, it, it was Jira, Diet Jira, I don't know, Dr. Pepper Jira. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was important that, uh, that they opened the new instance and, you know, they owned it because it's, you know, their project at the end of the day. We're just kind of transient in their right. world. Is that something that's that reason, we end up working within their systems? A lot of times they've got a subscription to a, a cloud-based Jira product or something else, right? But in cases where we work with a client who doesn't have anything, we'll just set up whatever works. A lot of times that's Jira, but it could just be, you know, again, lightweight like GitHub issues or whatever. So cool. One, one thing I appreciate is that we do tend to be flexible to what the client is using so that we work into their system and they do have that sense of ownership, Matt, but they also know that we are using it to make it easier for them. Yep. 
Um, all right. So let's move on to the most important, what I consider the most important uh, responsibility of a project manager, and that's communication. You know, And when I say communication, I'm talking to client stakeholders, to client developers, to our developers. Um, this can involve meetings and things like that. How, how do we approach that? And you know, that could even go to like, how do you tell if someone's not doing their job and how do you approach that? Man, that's a big question. Um, every client's a little bit different, which is a fun piece of this job. We, as a client services company, get to work with lots of different organizations who have their own system set up and the, their own way of doing things, their own culture around that. Uh, so making sure you communicate throughout the different levels of the project from your top level stakeholders down to your developers is, takes different skill sets. Uh, starting at the very top, some organizations, their answer to everything is throw people in a meeting. Uh, that's a really detrimental way, in my opinion, of trying to solve problems because it's it's sort of just passing the buck. Uh, so learning the skills about how to read a meeting invite and reject it or counter it or just ask for a clarification, I think is a big one. That's something I've had to get really good at. Um, you know, looking at how many people are listed on a meeting invitation, what their range of jobs, uh, their job skills, their job, um, what, what their jobs are, their roles in the company. And then is there a, what's the time slot allotted? How much time do we have for this meeting? And is there an agenda? So if there's 30 people for a 30 minute meeting, ranging from a developer to the, uh, the design lead up through the, you know, I've had some like marketing leads on there and there's no agenda on that that's what I'm going to learn to sort of push back on. So you, we try and adapt what we do with the, the communication skills and the preferences of the client, but at the same time, learning how to kind of guide that or facilitate that so that you're not getting your developers pulled into meetings they don't need to be in your, you know, so that I'm not spending my time in those meetings because my time needs to be focused on communicating through the people that need that attention to get the work done. So a lot of times I'll try and, you know, I'll, I'll take the bullet and sit into the meetings so that the developers can get back to work. If I feel like the meeting would benefit from having the insight of a developer there, I'll bring a developer in. Uh, but then when you get to the other side, I like to try and keep those high-level discussions sort of compartmentalized to where they need to be. If, you know, if it's a high-level talk about what work is possibly coming down the pipeline that we're going to need to do next, or are we going to hit these, these milestones? That's something I can take on myself and then relay that down to the developers as needed. That I can do that through how we set up our, our regular Scrum events if we're going with a strict Scrum process. Or that could just be you know a regular stand-ups, which is part of Scrum, but it's a pretty common piece of just any sort of agile framework, which is generally what we work in. Uh, but kind of let the developers do their own thing. We have some really smart, talented, self-driven developers at Lullabot. And generally that kind of bleeds into the project that we work into as well. So uh, if we're working with a team from another company, generally we get a really good vibe going between the two and, and anyone can sort of take that, that, uh, that motivation to do what they need to ask the questions when they need to ask the questions and work within themselves. Uh, they don't need a lot of micromanaging, I think is the succinct way to say that. Yeah. So something that I've seen on some projects that I've been on is that the PM also tends to set the expectations with the non-Lullabots early in the project. Um, one of my favorite PMs to work with who's not on a call is Jared Bittner. And we were on this project and, and he went up there and then when he got in, his first meeting was to kind of get rid of meetings. And so, so he was talking about, uh, he had discussion with the stakeholders and said, hey, listen, these meetings are spread all over the place. It interrupts our flow. There's too many of them. We don't need all these people on there. So let's roll it back as far as we can. And then if we need more, we'll start gradually adding them. And that little bit of work that he did right there like made a huge difference. It allowed us to get these unbroken blocks of time where we were just kind of able to actually get stuff done. And uh, I'm a big believer in that. Um, have have any of you had any similar situations where you've you know said, "Hey, 
hold your horses here. That's uh <laughs> Oh, I have super strong opinions about this. Uh, yeah. I totally get what you're saying. Um, you know, the Paul Graham talks about this with Y Combinator, there's maker time and then there's manager time. And the two are completely different. And even if you think about a meeting, if you have five people in the meeting and they're billing at $175 an hour and they take 20 minutes, it's 300 bucks right there. So if you're rambling or not organized or don't know how to communicate the issues at hand it's it's costing so a couple of things that i think about when setting the tone for, for a project is um protecting the developers time so that they do have those big blocks of time to really chunk and work on a project you cannot work on something in an hour sometimes it takes an hour to just get your stuff set up right so if you can protect the developers time that's key but then also if you can be respectful of the clients time and understand that they just want to know what the blockers are what the deadlines are what the key deliverables are they want to have an opportunity to get stakeholder feedback from their people and then come back and give you feedback. So one thing that I like to see is having kind of internal standups. Let's say you have a 15 minute round with the people on the team. Then you have your scheduled meetings with the client to do design review or go more in depth or talk about anything that's happening with the project, but keeping those totally separate. And like you say, not having the developer be a part of the client engagement. Um, unless it's absolutely necessary. And then if it is something that the developer does want to be a part of, then supporting them in that. But I can see how, let's say you had a meeting at 10.30 and then meeting at 1.30 and then meeting at 3.30, you're not going to get the time to actually focus on that bug or that issue or that deployment. It sounds like uh, it's something where a PM needs to be a clearinghouse for communication. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like a good descriptor? I find that to be the case. My... Um... In, in hearing Chris and Monica describe that stuff, I'm I'm nodding my head vigorously. And since it's a podcast, you can't see me, but I'm not 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 on all that. I think I think you got your hands the, in the air and you're saying preach. That's totally what okay. I'm doing. Okay. Um, but the the thing I would add is that for the team, you're trying to protect that those blocks of time. You're trying to advocate for them and get the right kind of requirements so that they don't have to spend all their time in meetings in order to, to do the work. At the same time, um. I find PMs also have to advocate for the client to the developers in some ways, which is to say, you know, I've, I've had times where I've talked to the developer and said, Hey, I think that thing isn't going to pass muster. It's not going to be what the client needs. And I've, I've had devs like go come back on me and challenge me and say, is that you talking or is that the client talking? Man. And I, I feel like the, the longer you, you occupy the technical PM role at Lullabot, uh, the, easier it is to switch hats between, okay, I'm, I'm the, the dev advocate towards the client and I'm the client advocate towards the dev. And so you know what the product owner is going to say. And so you don't have to wait until the client sees that it's that it's not quite working the way they expected to be able to um, give that feedback back to the developer. And as it turns out, uh, as you develop those instincts, it usually turns out right. And the, the, uh, the QA process reveals, oh yeah, man, Darren's opinion over time has, has turned out to be the similar to the clients in terms of quality control and stuff. So that, uh, I feel like that's the thing we occupy. We, we look in both directions and try and interface for, for either side. I'd also say that English or just the ability to communicate is very um, helpful in that if you can write something out that has the exact screenshot, the link to the data dictionary, the link to the Illustrator file, if it's really clear what it is, then it reduces some of the back and forth and back and forth that might come from something that wasn't worded so clearly yep. or so succinctly. Monica, I think even though I haven't worked with you yet, I think you are now my most favorite project manager. <laughs> because that's like, that. that's totally like, as a developer, that's like my pet peeve when I have to like, what exactly do we want right here? And, yep. um, you know, having a screenshot with a big red arrow, this thing, you know, matters so much along with like any links to, you know, designs or et cetera. Yeah, it goes really deep into that because even things like categories as opposed to say a link list or it would be something like, um, how would you style something or something that we're working with with Darren right now? Is it a views, uh, an embed from an argument? Is it pulling from somewhere else or is it something where you just attach it into the actual node? These are all kind of structural questions, but you're trying to think from the perspective of, say, the end content editor who doesn't know any of that. All they want to do is post their blog, right? Or they just want to put the press release or the announcement or their event up. And how can we build a system that supports them in that process, but is also straightforward and easy for our team and is also 
something that doesn't involve a lot of technical debt that we'll have to come back to in two or three or five years and deal with again. Yeah, totally. So we've talked a little bit about communication um, and it being an important skill of project managers. And I think there's another one and that's uh, to be a prognosticator. Uh, that's uh, a big I, word, I Mike. To, do you know that I, one? I have to, I have to Google that word. Okay. Excuse me for a minute. Does it have something to do with pig snaps? No. <laughs> It's telling the future. It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes. A person who foretells or prophesizes a future event. Yes. 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 I I think that's probably a little bit important Um, to start because you end up doing some estimation work. We certainly do. I have a a jar of chicken bones on my desk that I use every day. No. Um, (laughs) Yes. Is that like tea leaves or? Yeah. Yeah. You know, sort of a roll the bones and see what happens. Um, but uh, yeah, we we end up doing estimates. Uh, some are more formal than others. Sometimes it's pre-sales estimates where we know this is going to be a fixed bid project, and we've got. Um, I'm I'm working with something right now where I have like 400 line items in a spreadsheet, trying to figure out a way to size that project and get it back to the client and say, "Here's the budget that we think is actually feasible for the complexity that you have." Um, and sometimes it's day-to-day estimates just within a ticket where, you know the your counterpart, your product owner, or whomever on the client side wants to know, are we going to be able to get this feature in by the particular deadline that they have? Like they have some internal stakeholder that wants to see that feature out there. Um, and of course, those those are gut level checks. A lot of times my estimation technique in those moment to moment things is to say, I think it's feasible, but I have a secret rule that I have, which is never commit to a thing on the same day that it's being asked. I say, I think it's feasible, but I'm going to have to go talk to my my dev team and go back and ask them about it, get that ticket from the client and let the let the devs ask all the questions they need to ask before we commit to this thing at this particular deadline. That helps for scope control and a whole bunch of other stuff, but there's definitely estimation wrapped into all of those kinds of conversations. I would say that a lot of it is about planning and I fully believe that it, these projects get built twice. First, they get built in our minds with data documents, almost like the blueprint of your project and then it moves into actual build out where you're putting into reality the vision that you had from the original content strategy or design and architecture so i say every hour that you spend in the planning process really saves you time in the build out because you've already thought through what these different relationships are between the content and who's allowed to do what in terms of roles or permissions, what types of content there are, how they relate to each other, if they reference to each other. Think about that first instead of in the middle of a build having to think about those questions and but, you'll uh, save the time. But doesn't isn't that like almost the opposite of agile where you're kind of doing more waterfall at that point? Yeah, agile. Well, um, I right? would say, yeah, yeah. No, this is, so I had interested in Chris's uh, talk about this because it, in a product where there's an actual end delivered product that you're doing, you have a roadmap, you have a feature set, you have priorities and stakeholders are advocating for different parts of those features and you can build out some of those things as you move through the kind of mapping. However, if you're appended to a project that's more of a maintenance or more of a like an ongoing project, I think that would be a different setup or a different way to measure how would you how are you doing let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the methodologies coming up after a little bit if we could yeah uh, um, w- when it comes to uh, estimation chris do you have any any thoughts or any magic secret sauce that you lean on nope you just guess <laughs> <laughs> like the 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 random number rule is Pretty much yeah. as accurate as you can get. The the zodiac sign of Jupiter while it's in retrograde right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. I, I will say this, right? There's this joke that everybody says about you know whatever your estimate is, double it, and that's not inherently wrong. But you can be sharper about that by saying you know the developer typically, and I, no offense intended here, typically thinks about the time it will take for them to build the code, but they don't always think about review time, QA time, deploy time. And that's where that that estimate has to yes. get doubled. And then there are times when, like a developer, just misunderstood or the or you know the product owner misunderstood the complexity of the thing to the point that it really does take longer. Um, and this causes a uh, a phenomenon called submarining, where the developer works on it, gets frustrated, says, "I just have to work harder. I have to double down." 
and that happens for several days in a row and they keep not popping up or they keep coming up to the standup and saying, I'm almost done, man. I'm 80% there. And you're like, 80% there all week long. That's not right. So 80, 20 rule applies, right? Where 20% of the work takes 80% of the time. Yeah, exactly. And so when I hear a developer saying I'm almost done two standups in a row, I want to check in on them and see if they're okay. Because it may be that they're having a lot of problems and they, it's hard to surface that in front of the client or whatever, you know? So um, being able to, to reach out to developer and say, Hey, I see that you're giving me the same update multiple days in a row. Is everything all right? Do you need to get a, a work in progress pull request out for the rest of the team to see your approach? And maybe that'll help. A lot of times a client developer will have um, this problem more so than a Lullabot developer on our projects um, where they'll have a task assigned, they're failing at it and they don't know how to say that to everybody because they're like in front of their boss and in front of the Lullabots or whatever. And Sometimes we have to like, it's like pulling teeth to get them to get whatever the state of their work is out in front of us into a pull request where we can get a more senior developer or just another pair of eyes, not even more senior, uh, to just get a different perspective. And then usually it moves forward. So transparency yeah. and early and often getting that stuff out there sometimes makes the difference. I've seen, I've seen that before. I'd say definitely fail early, fail often, ask yeah. questions. There are no stupid questions because uh, if you have a question, most probably somebody else has it too. And so it's just the bravest person to ask it. But I do appreciate that at Lullabot, there's a culture of like fail forward. Like you can make the mistakes so that yeah. we can all learn and get better from it. Yeah. yeah. Internally, we have a very good culture of saying, I don't know how to do this. Even if it's, you know, within my purview as a friend and web developer, I can say, well, I don't know, you know, how say like React works or something. And no one's going to come down and saying, you should know this. And I feel comfortable saying that and I know who to reach out to. But yeah, if you're in another pro if you're in another company and your boss is there standing over you and you're, th and you're thinking, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. It's a little scary and intimidating and stressful. Yeah. And yep. the flip side of that is I see the wins. I see Wes figuring out something with uh, purely CSS and then being able to share that and that potential. <laughs> you know, able to be shared through all the other projects. So it's a big yeah. brain with lots of other people working on that one big brain. Yeah. yeah. Does Parkinson's law apply? Are you familiar with Parkinson's law? Yes. Work expands to fill available time. Yeah. So. Uh, yes. Yeah. It really, really does. Or is that the Peter principle where you reach the level that you're. Close. It's, it's like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Parkinson's law being, if you have two weeks to do one task, it'll take two weeks. And if you have a day to do that one task, it'll take a day. You'll either gold plate it or whatever you have to yeah. do, but the, the work expands to fill available time is totally true. Um, a lot of times we work on retainer. We work, you know, we sell weeks of, of a developer to a client, um, and which is a very different experience than working on a fixed bid project where you have a set of features and you're supposed to deliver them and you're getting paid for the feature, not for the time. Um, it's two sort of totally different ways of having to manage the project. Uh, so scope creep enters in on a fixed bid project much more easily because you have um, maybe a long list of things and the client just expects that they're going to get done. It's easy to slip an additional one in there if you're not managing it super carefully. On the flip side of that retainer situation, you know, if the client has a certain set of things that they want to work with, our, our job at Lullabot from the developers and the project manager is to uh, carefully protect the the core thing that we know they need when we only have two weeks to do it, or we only have three weeks to do it or whatever, um, to be sure that they're going to get the maximum value out of that three weeks. And we, one of the ways to protect that is to not overload ourselves with additional requests. So it's almost like scope control is necessary in both cases. It isn't just time and materials are going to work until uh, the clock stops and then we're going to walk away. We really have to finish within the time. And so Parkinson's law is, is a thing to... Uh, to consider there. Can we cram that extra thing in there or, or do we need to, to finish this with such a high degree of quality that it's going to expand to fill that extra week or whatever? I'd say also that this is the beauty of open source, right? This is something that we're using. We have so many thousands of lines of code that are doing some of the exact same problems that you face. It's easier hmm. or it takes fewer, say, weeks for you to implement something that might have been more difficult or be more time or cost costly on another platform. I know we just did that project in two months and even the client thought that that was a, a quick um, turnaround in the support and maintenance team, something like that. And uh, just thinking about if we already have a theme, if we already have all these components, we have modules that are 
ready and raring to go, it makes it so much easier for everybody. So that's the plug for hashtag Drupal. Yep. So we're talking project management on the Lullabot podcast with three of Lullabot's all-star project managers. Coming up right after this, we're going to get a little bit into methodologies, uh, the ones that uh, our PMs like to lean on, what they prefer. And we'll also talk a little bit about pushback. Coming up right after this. Hey, it's Avi for Midcamp. What's happening with the next camp, Avi? Hey, uh, we're super psyched about O-Midcamp. It's coming March 18th through 21st, 2020. The big deal is it's going to back right up against St. Patrick's Day in Chicago. It's going to be at DePaul University Lincoln Park Campus in Chicago. Wednesday is summits and trainings. Thursday and Friday are sessions. And Saturday is going to be our contribution day. Coming in fall 2019, we have $50 early bird tickets. And our call for proposals is going to open up. All right, check out midcamp.org for more, and we'll see you on St. Patrick's Day in Chicago for Midcamp 2020. Uh, welcome back to the Lullabot podcast. We are talking with our project managers on keeping the Gantt chart scanting. So let's talk a little bit about uh, different methodologies. You know, uh, obviously agile is the one that businesses like to throw around a lot. We hear the terms waterfall. And then we also heard the term Kanban, which I'm not quite sure if it's pronounced Kanban or Kanban. Kanban's good. All right. (laughs) Thank you. That's what I've been using. Yep. Or or Kanban. And all right. Kanban, Kanban, waterfall, agile, how do I know what are the differences and how do I know when to use one over the other? Sure. I'll jump on this. Cause well, I'm, let's just get real quick definitions here. Waterfall. Yeah. Who wants to describe waterfall real quick? Waterfall is the idea that you plan it and then you build it and then you test it and then you show the client. So you get it all figured out and then you build it. Right. And here you go. At and the end. Okay. That's a great idea. Except the big unveiling usually is six months after the planning was done and the client's needs have changed. And so, uh, what you built for them wasn't actually what they need anymore. Okay. And so there's a lot of dangerous ways to do like a, a sort of a stair step one after the other fashion, um, which is why agile is what it is. The idea that you want to cycle through short so development. Monica, do you want to talk a little bit about agile yeah. or scrum or something oh, like that? Yeah, absolutely. Agile. Uh, it's taking, I remember distinctly my mentor, Dean Thompson um, walked us through how to implement agile. So it's daily standups, 15 minutes max. Some people I've seen do stand-ups And it's literally around. like you're supposed to be standing, right? And that's the so, point. Yeah, of the I've seen them so in a circle short. doing push-ups to make sure that you're not being extremely wordy. And that, that sounds um, a little stand-up, <laughs> that stand-up is to identify blockers and figure out what the plan is for this week's or for the day's work so that everybody's on the same page. And then, of course, it's all clearly defined and your ticket is in your queue. And again, in terms of Agile, to to Darren's point about waterfall, if you're in an engagement with a client, it's helpful because we have tools like Tugboat for QA. Your client can see exactly what is happening as they're asking for it, and they can test it. They can give you early feedback. They can um, surface something that they might not have thought about when they first asked for this feature. So having uh, a tighter cycle between implementation and then feedback uh, is probably the best thing for clients in terms of agile. And then in terms for the, for the team, there's definitely the psychological aspect of it that Chris can definitely talk about the wins you get after two week sprint, where you had said you were going to work on say the user registration page and a login and the first version of the whatever glossary. And at the end of the two weeks, you have all these working elements, demo it to the client, demo it internally and kind of checkbox what do we do well? What do we do wrong? And then move into the next the next step. So I would say, at least in today's climate where people ship early, they ship often. If they're not embarrassed, then it's like too late, that kind of thing. It is good to have some sort of system where you can keep track of what's being created, get feedback on it, and then have clear wins during the process. So it's still, you know, it's still very similar to Waterfall in that we're going to plan it, we're going to build it, we're going to deliver it but we're going to iterate through that process more often, right? I don't know. Has Waterfall ever worked for anybody here? I know. Sure. I mean, like we, build, I, building a skyscraper or something, right? I'm, that would be, you know. There's a waterfall process. Yeah. Yep. yeah. You can think of it. I, I like this analogy or using these terms for it. It's iterative versus incremental. Agile is iterative. Waterfall is incremental. So if you want to take that skyscraper metaphor, you're going to build a skyscraper incrementally, piece by piece. Sure. But the skyscraper is not usable 
until it's done, until every increment has been completed. Yes. And, and in physical- trial, you approach it from um, an iterative process where after each iteration, you should have a new version of a working product. So you could, that would be, all right, well, first I built this little uh, tent on the, on the ground. And then I go for a two week sprint. My next iteration is I have a wooden structure. My next iteration is I put some bricks around that structure. My next iteration is levels, car park, all the way up. So that's, that's the, the bigger, I, I really like that looking at it from that perspective, the difference between waterfall methodologies versus agile methodologies. And then really agile encompasses everything that we generally toss around as project managers in terms of frameworks, which is Kanban, Scrum, uh, extreme programming, XP. Oh, I forgot about that one. I guess it also depends on what you're building because the skyscraper, you know, is not going to be changed midway through into a kind of shopping mall. So that's also part of it. You would hope not. <laughs> so <laughs> what is what is extreme programming and is it related to Windows XP? I think Windows XP stole its its terminology <laughs> from that. But extreme programming is is um it's the same as Scrum in terms of its small units of deliverable software. The, the key thing about XP is that it mandates pair programming, like two developers working at the same screen, um, which is kind of unique and not very cost-effective, but certain internal teams, uh, it's hard to do in a client services kind of situation, but internal teams can um, get some good benefit out of it. Like it produces really quality software. Um, it just doesn't produce it you know, quite as fast. But Windows XP was not quality. How do you explain that? Windows XP Marketing. was awesome. Are you kidding me? Windows XP stuck around for ages. Yeah, it was yeah, in that like every other stuff. every other release of Windows was good, and XP was on the good one, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can yeah. see that. All right, all right. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> I'll, I'll say about Kanban. It's it's worth noting that you know Kanban comes from factory, um, yeah. fa- you know, like factory methodology. Toyota invented this thing. In Japan back in the 1950s and 60s. But the idea that um, basically you want to be able to see all the work that's going on at a given time and you want to minimize how many things are happening at once. Those are the two big things about Kanban um, is visualize your work and then limit your work in progress. The What that ends up meaning is a developer works on a task, usually only one task, maybe two if you need to alternate because you get blocked or whatever. Um, but then the other big thing about Kanban is the product owner is prioritizing the backlog and the developer shows up and pulls the next thing off the stack as opposed to like packing a sprint for two weeks and we're going to deliver all this stuff at once. Um, the developers are just continuously pulling tasks through the, the workflow and delivering those things and getting frequent deployments and stuff. And what that means for us at Lullabot is early in the process, we might do a big design sort of waterfall design process to get our comps and our stuff together and then switch to iterative develop delivery of that stuff. So we really start scrum as soon as the, the comps and the planning is done. And then we deliver that every two weeks until the project's ready to launch. And, and then after that product has launched and you still have a team that's, that's working to add new features, it really sort of transitions into Kanban where the work is flowing and you're just grabbing new, new work or fixing bugs or whatever and deploying as rapidly as possible. So on my project on georgia.gov, we went from two-week demos to almost never doing a demo anymore um, because we're deploying every week and we have a, a continuous flow of, of QA with the client. Uh, so we don't have official demos because we've really sort of achieved that flow state where the work is just moving through the process. Yeah, all of these methodologies are intended to assist your team in getting their objectives done in a quicker, easier, better format for everyone. So I can fully understand something starting out some way and then evolving to make it better for everybody involved. So how do you choose what to start with? And how do you, and, and how do you know when to change it up? I think for me, the shape of the project evolves over time, like the needs of the team evolve over time. We had a large team on georgia.gov to start with. We had a lot of design processes happening, a lot of planning going on. And we were trying to achieve a critical mass of features so that we could ship our first website. And that took months and months and months to do. And along that, um, along that time period, we had to be able to show the client progress and get their feedback as quickly as possible. Uh, we couldn't do that continuously because we didn't have enough built and we needed to be sure, hey, we built this. Is this right? So Scrum is perfect for that. Like two-week sprints, show what you did at the end of those two weeks, get feedback, adjust, and keep going. That's perfect for Scrum. Um, 
But once you have a product in hand and you're in ongoing maintenance mode, like I, like I said a second ago, demos stop being useful because there's not enough new material out there to wow the client with. Um, and you're really just trying to get feedback as quickly as possible and then put out features to production uh, you know, to add value as quickly as you can. So you really transition away from Scrum toward Kanban. And that's been the shape of most of the products that we've built at Wallabout that I've been on um, is that later in the project, it moves to sort of a flow state as opposed to an incremental delivery uh, you know, dropping demos every two weeks kind of a thing. It just turns out that way. Right on. It sounds like uh, these traditional methodologies are very useful kind of in their own way. And it's just kind of a, a you get a feeling for what needs to be done and you get it done. Yep. A lot of them and end up being combined in ways too. It, it's hard to, especially when you're working in a remote team, like most of the the projects that we work on, because Lullabot doesn't have an office anywhere, we're all distributed. So the ideas that sort of formed what we know as uh, Scrum, Kanban, they, they were formed with a co-located team in mind. Like Mono was, Monica was describing having a stand-up literally be a stand-up. You're at a table. You can, it, it really, you wouldn't even need a Scrum Master for it. The developers could get together at a table, say what they're doing, go to the left. What you're doing, go to the left. Any blockers, done in no more than 15 minutes, you go back to your desks. So having the remote teams, the, the, the non-co-located teams adds a trick to that. And I think what we've seen come out of that is these sort of hybrid systems, especially if you're not developing a, a particular product, if it is somewhat maintenance, bug fixes, new features, and then somewhat we need to migrate this site over. It's hard to pin that level of project into one framework. And I think that's really the great thing about what we know is you know, Scrum and Kanban is that they provide a framework for you to develop the processes that work for your team and figuring out what those processes are is really on the project manager to get the team working in the most effective, most efficient way. And so we've, I've heard some fun terms come around to describe those like scrum, but, you know, we're doing scrum, but not really. Uh, okay. you know, it, it takes some of those pieces from the scrum methodology. Right. And then we've built a sort of a framework around that. You know, one of the example might be, we're kind of doing everything that we would normally do in Scrum, but we're not doing strict sprint planning or just sort of flowing cards through because everything we're doing is maintenance. But we do still have a regular release cadence. We do still have regular stand-ups, which comes from, you know, everything. You can kind of pull pieces from different areas, but the idea is ultimately, you've got to, as a project manager, figure out which processes get your team to work the right way to fit into what the project's asking. And I'd say, Darren, you probably have more experience with this or Monica, maybe like, how do you, is there a way to get the project to shift to sort of fit the way the team works? Or is it always one side? Is it always, we need to make the team fit the project? No, I, I think agile, like I'm not a subscriber to strict scrum or religious Kanban observance or any of that stuff. I, I feel like agile is a toolbox where you need to pick and choose based on the needs of like, what's wrong with my project. We don't have enough communication. Oh, we need a stand-up meeting or we're not delivering fast enough. So we might need to think about more regular delivery. And that means not doing two week sprints. It means, you know, Kanban instead. So there's uh, not a one size fits all answer. I don't think. Being distributed um, might present other challenges uh, to having the strict adherence to some of these procedural things. Like doesn't correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't like uh, a tenant of agile, a physical scrum board, are you supposed to move sticky notes around? Am I wrong? Yeah, Agile, you do have a set list of what you're going to work on and an estimate attached to each like strict yeah. scrum you figure out yeah. and that fills up your whole two-week period yeah. and you right. figure out the burn down. I mean, if you get into the, the sure. weeds of it, you figure out how far off you are on your estimate. But I think to Darren's point, I think the nuance of PMing a project is really understanding who are your people and what are their needs and what are some of the emerging issues, maybe somebody's going on leave, somebody's having problems, uh, personal issues, or the client has a deadline that they need to shop around to their stakeholders. So part of this is being sensitive to the humanity of what's going on and using the tools to support the Is doing the that remotely hard? Project. It does add an extra challenge. It's uh, like, instead of having the, I think you're right, Matt, like the initial idea was having a scrum board on a wall with sticky notes that you moved around. 
there's a lot of software that's come into the market to help sort of fill that gap sure. now. Um, I mean, Jira has the scrum board, but, but back to what Monica was saying, Chris, um, like you, you were, you were talking about the humanity of the project and is, yeah. that, is that hard remotely? Like you don't necessarily see my facial expressions <laughs> when I'm pissed off at a views bug or something. Yeah, you have, you learn how to read people a little bit better, and I think that's one area that it's been really beneficial for me being a developer in the past is that I recognize some of those qualities that other developers are displaying because I've lived through them. Like those those times when I you know I submarine myself and I'm just like I have to get this done. I'm really pissed that I can't figure out this bug. Why is this not working? I'm just going heads down for as long as it takes to figure it out. You know, you start to recognize and empathize with some of those things. So knowing your team is really an important part when you can't see their facial expressions. You can't watch yeah. them set across the room if they're getting frustrated with something. Um, but conversely, also when there's a, a big win, when they come up to a standup or a meeting and they say, I finally got this done. I'm so excited about it. Like being able to share that. And, you know, if you're all in the same room, you can high five each other. You can give a hug. You can have a you know a happy hour after work if that's your thing. But when you're all remote and distributed, it's very easy to lose those wins as well. So make yeah, sure use emojis. Emo right. Yeah, emojis become a very important part of communication. So, like one of the questions that I had was probably the most important question: which emojis are appropriate for which situation? <laughs> <laughs> applause emoji always yeah applause the fried shrimp the uh the um that's the my favorite party emoji and of course there's the thumbs up right mm -hmm. i'm partial to the dancing banana <laughs> what we've got that one on the ibm side i don't know if we i'll see if i can snag that one for the little <laughs> one but you know the right. butter yeah. jelly time banana oh yeah yeah from family yes. Yes. of course yeah. of course I think yeah. you can you can use certain kind of uh, standards or etiquette in order to facilitate a sense of community and kind of camaraderie. So I appreciate, for example, at Lullaby, a lot of people are using their um, conference calling Zoom or Meet or um, GoToMeeting and always having the front-facing camera on. So that's helpful that I see people's faces. I've seen Darren um, in in online before I met him in person and it was totally fine. So I think that's one part of it. I think, um, I think we alluded to this a little bit. How do you deal with when somebody's maybe not performing? Uh, I do sense at Lullabot there's a high level of kind of personal, always bringing your personal best and being accountable to that. And so in a scrum situation where you are discussing an actual ticket, if you do see somebody slacking, it's very visible, it's very apparent, it's very easily surfaced. And so there's an opportunity to communicate on that. But I think working remotely, it does have its benefits in that you are bringing everything to the table and when you're on, you're on. Yep, you just gotta be intentional when you see somebody's needing help because you can't just like look at their facial expressions. You gotta look for other signs and then maybe reach out to them in a private message or whatever. And uh -huh and be able to say, Hey, is everything all right? And yeah, I just have to try to do that intentionally as opposed to hoping it's going to happen because it doesn't just happen if you don't have a water cooler to gather around. Sure. So would you say that we need to have a lot of the kind of soft skills, the communication, empathy, team building, um, kind of bringing your heart to the business? That kind of I, thing? I think that's totally true for any PM in any situation because the people stuff is the stuff that's hard to train for. Like you can learn about scrum or you can learn about how to run a spreadsheet, but um, the, so-called soft skills are actually much harder. Um, and so they're mis kind of misnamed there. I think though that, again, you have to be more intentional when you're remote um, because you can't rely on like being in the same space as somebody to pick up on that kind of thing. So you actually have to ask and it's sometimes less comfortable, but it's important to do. Along the lines of the uh, soft skills that we've been talking about, I think they can probably be put to use um, with our last question here, which is uh, pushback. Um, against our clients. It's, it seems that uh, throughout my history at Lullabot, um, we have a lot of really great client relationships. Um, and, you know, they've come back for more after, you know, we finish long projects, you know, year after year, we end up working with a lot of these same people. And it's not because we always tell them yes. So yeah. how do we handle that in the right way? Or how do we how do we screw that up sometimes? Like, mm -hmm. what's the right way to do it? I mean, I, I think the, the biggest single way to screw it up is to not talk about problems 
early. And I, I have a, I have a, a sort of a Pee Wee Herman reference here that if I'm uncomfortable with a particular thing, I'm going to have that pit of my stomach feeling that maybe something's not right. I shouldn't sit on it. I need to scream real loud, like word of the day, scream real loud. Um, because it's not going to get any better by me hoping that it will get better. It has to get better by talking with the client about it. So letting bad news get communicated really early when it's not even sure it's going to be bad news, but it might be bad news is probably um, a key discipline and a key lesson that I had to learn early on. Uh, I had a previous boss that always liked to say that um, bad news doesn't get better with age. Hmm. You never want to surprise your client with with a bad news at the end. Like, hey, guess what? This is going to cost more or we're going to have to tell you no. And now you're in a bind and we've left you with no options or choices, right? So you want to do that conversation as early as you can and come to the table with options to say, hey, this looks like it's going over. This is how we're going to have to adjust the schedule. This is the feature that we think is the least important that we could probably cut or reduce its complexity in order to get to a finish line that you're happy with. There are plenty of companies that might come with a lowball estimate and then, you know, have a change o- change order later, you know? Um, yeah. I think that's a, that's a lie and we shouldn't do that, honestly. Yeah. So, yeah. I think people come to us because of that culture of kind of, we're a thought partner, we're your equal partner in this, we're committed to getting this done, but we'll also flag with you early and often if we're having an issue or something that we yep. see potentially becoming an issue, but we'll surface it to you and not kind of pretend that it's not there. And that's part of our values, right? Collaborating openly, being really clear upfront. I think people appreciate that in this day and age of having somebody who'll tell to you straight. Yeah. And that, that, that goes kind of throughout too. Uh, I've, we've had discussion with our sales teams because as, as just was said, like there's other agencies that will lowball stuff and throw out change orders, knowing ahead of time that we're going to have to throw out change orders, which is very dishonest. Uh, and Lullabot does not do that you know, which, which costs us an occasional project or two, but the benefit is, is our projects are typically successful with a minimum of those change orders. And so we get the clients coming back, which of course is another way to do business. Yeah. So so how how do you limit scope creep when the, when the customer says, Hey, we need these three other things. Yeah. So this is, this is my favorite technique, right? So scope creep, is seen as an evil, bad thing. Like these darn clients are always asking for additional stuff outside of the scope of the agreement. And I feel like that that's um, the wrong way to look at it. It's very human to, to like have a new idea and the new idea is a good idea and it suits your business. So anything, I, I want to validate everything the client says with respect to what they need on their website. Even if it's like, I just need more bubbles floating around my website, which I've literally heard people say. Um, make the logo bigger. Is, yeah, can I make the logo bigger? If that's if that's what's gonna make the sale for you or make your boss happy or whatever, then that's a legitimate thing. So instead of saying, Ugh, clients, I need to say yes and dot, dot, dot. So the yes and thing that we steal from like, uh, comedy sports and and theater improv and stuff like that is when the client says, Hey, I need the logo bigger. I say, yes. And that means we're not going to be able to put the search in the main nav bar because your logo is so big or whatever, or whatever the consequence is. Like if you want this other feature, it's going to have a trade-off. So being able to identify what that trade-off is and say, yes. And that's going to probably add another week to the project. It isn't that you had to say no, it's that sure. We'll give you what you want. And we're going to need different changes to the paperwork in order to make that happen. What if the client offers you a steak dinner? Then you just say <laughs> you tell the developers we're going to need you to work on Saturday. That, 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 that was kind of a that was an inside joke because I was actually in a room where four other developers and I were offered a steak dinner for features. It was pretty good. Awesome. We, we, no, did, we didn't get the steak dinner. Right, I would imagine features. Uh, I would guess too, again, this is why our tool set and our kind of deeper knowledge helps because for our clients, they're maybe building a website once every four or five years, right? And we're building it every day. We know what it will take or if 
it'll take two minutes or if it'll take two days. So it, it makes it easier because we can understand the capabilities. And with experience, we understand what people are asking for because we've seen it, right? If you see it in one situation, it's possible that another situation will want it too. So I think yeah. that this part of it is the experience aspect, the open source nature, the collaboration aspect, and then telling somebody straight, this will take you an extra two weeks. Are you willing to deal with that? If it's a yes, then yes. If it's no, it's no, but at least they know what it takes. Yeah. Some of the best, I think most, some of the most successful projects that we've been on have ended with the client saying something like what you said, Monica, we appreciated having Lullabot there for their thought leadership and their collaboration and their people skills. So it was a lot of fun to work with them in it that the, that part generally tends to supersede. Um, by the way, the project was awesome and the product that we got was fantastic. Like that always comes in as well uh, for most of the stuff that we do. But it's, it's really encouraging to know that we are finding good partners to work with that have the same values that we do. Um, and it's not always the case though. And it's, that's when the, the pushback, that's when you, you know, you're flexing your Hulk muscles as I think a good project manager when that situation arises where you aren't necessarily seeing eye to eye with the customer and they're saying, okay, this when the CEO comes down and hands you a CSS file full of colored links that don't at all match with the comps and just hand them to the developer and say, here, this is ready, implement this. There are, there are some challenges that can come along with that where you've got to try and figure out where to push back, where to where to let it in and then how that communicates through to the developers. And it is, it's that iron triangle is the, the, the metaphor we use to describe, you know, scope, scope of work. So the features you're going to get versus the budget you have to implement those features versus the resources and time to, to get those done. And it's, if one moves, it affects the other too. So kind of keeping that in the back of your head and explaining those things as best you can. And if, if you explain that and say, Yes, we can absolutely implement this nice colored CSS that you gave us, sir. But unfortunately now, or, or, and we're going to have to remove this whole big block of text that was approved by your other team. And if they say, well, no, mine's more important, you, you end up down these rabbit holes of <laughs> who's, who's reporting to who, who's not communicating with who. And, and sometimes there's only so much you can do. But I think one thing that we tend to try and find is when we look for good projects, we look for people as well as the work, as well as the budget piece of it. We try and get all sides of that triangle together. Time, money, and resources, right? That's kind of the, yes, the triangle, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, I think we need to point towards wrapping this up. So let's get some final thoughts. And I have a question for each of you three project managers. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll kind of give you your last chance to say something magical. Chris, I think sometimes the hardest part of communication is getting people inside of organizations to communicate with other parts of that organization. Yeah? Yeah, that's absolutely true and can be very frustrating. Was there a question there? Or? No, I don't know. I figured you were going to wax poetic there for a second. No, I mean, that's, uh, there are times where I've wanted to offer our services as Lullabot to other potential clients or other people like I've seen this before. Here's what we can do to help your team communicate better. I, I recognize there are some gaps between this side and that side. And say I've, sometimes there's interest in helping them. Sometimes there's not. And sometimes you have to realize you can only affect what you can affect. You can only, your, your purview is only so far, your reach is only so far, and you have to deal with really difficult constraints whether they're within your team or they, your team is being affected by them somewhere else and work within that. Uh, you know, I'm lucky that we have such a great team to back us up here. If, when those situations happen, I feel like I've got the resources behind me to help me through really tricky situations. Uh, Darren's been there for me in a lot of them. Uh, so it's, we have a really great system to deal with those types of things. And yeah, it's not always easy when you've got, you know, teams outside of your team that are disconnected, but are directly affecting the work you're trying to do in your team. Darren, you've been a PM at Lullabot for several years now. How would your family say that it's affected you? Um, the first thing they would say is they're glad dad's home to make dinner every day after school. Um, yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's just a great thing to be able to work at Lullabot and, and, 
my commute is to go chop vegetables in the kitchen and not have to be on phone calls anymore. Um, but I would say that um, in general, you know, it's easier to complain about your work to your family, like, oh, things are happening, clients are doing this, coworkers are doing that. Uh, and it's hard to remember to go back in and tell them, and this worked out. And the resolution to that problem was, so my kids often, uh, just because of the difficulty of that dynamic, may hear me gripe sometimes. Um, but they also know how much I enjoy working with the people that I work with. Um, they get to see our our interactions together, like the the jokes that we do in Slack and the um, the animated gifts and all the other stuff that that make up the the fun part of our day and the camaraderie that happens both with the clients and with the other lullabots, uh, they get to see those parentheses most of the time when appropriate close parentheses. Um, and I, my kids know how much I love doing what I'm doing and uh, are excited when I, when I have a big success. So I think, you know, being able to work at lullabot as a PM, my kids are getting a sense of what I do all day long and um, kind of the, the, the good parts of it, at least some of the time. So that's great. Monica, we're glad you're here. Are, 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 are we weird compared to the outside world? Uh, uh, I mean... Uh, <laughs> I oh, all right. It comes out. <laughs> but in a good way? <laughs> Let's just say that I am so thrilled to be a part of the team and to be bringing my best self and to be challenged and to be working on these amazing projects and to really make a measurable difference on the world. And part of my hope, at least for the next generation, is just find what you're really good at and find a fit with that in your place of employment. And I just feel very fortunate to be at a place where, yes, like Darren said, there's no commute. It's like another two hours of my day that I get back. But then also um, all of my skills can be utilized in the most amazing way. So I'm really grateful. Mike, project managers, can't live without them. Can't live without them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was, I was going to say, I can definitely live with my project managers. <laughs> That's good. I, uh, yeah. Let me just say, when you have to run project manager on a team that has Mike Herschel on it, you'll learn <laughs> a lot of really <laughs> skills. I was saying, like, <laughs> you know, you know, Matt, that could be an alternate title for the for the podcast. Project managers can't live with them, without them. Can't live without them. There you go. But, but I, I like to keep on ganting. <laughs> Back in Gantt chart. Anyway. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Thanks. everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much.